Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, December 28th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's top stories. Putin bans oil exports to price cap countries. Taiwan extends its mandatory military service. Ukraine hopes for a UN-backed peace summit by February. Serbia erects more roadblocks in northern Kosovo. Representative-elect George Santos admits to fabricating details on his CV. Peru arrests generals amid a probe into former President Castillo. A man is sentenced to 16 years in prison for plotting to kidnap Michigan's governor. China announces an end to its COVID quarantine for travelers. The U.S. probes Southwest Airlines over flight cancellations. And the FDA explores regulating CBD in foods and supplements. Putin will ban oil supplies to price cap countries. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, Newsmax, U.S. News and World Report, and TASS. Russian President Vladimir Putin delivered his response to a Western price cap on Tuesday, signing a decree that bans the supply of crude oil and oil products to countries abiding by the price cap for five months after February 1st. A price cap implemented by G7 countries Australia and the EU came into effect on December 5th, prohibiting countries from paying more than $60 per barrel of Russian oil. Putin's decree issued on Tuesday read, Deliveries of Russian oil and oil products to foreign entities and individuals are banned on the condition that in the contracts for these supplies, the use of a maximum price-fixing mechanism is directly or indirectly envisaged. Western countries implemented the price cap in order to decrease Russia's revenue while it engages in a war with Ukraine. The cap prohibits Russian oil sold for over $60 from being shipped using G7 and EU tankers, insurance companies, and credit institutions. Russian oil has been selling slightly below the price cap level of $56 per barrel, but the effects of the price cap may decrease Moscow's oil earnings. Finance Minister Anton Siluanov said that Russia's budget deficit could be wider than the planned 2% of GDP. Putin still maintains the right to make special decisions on the supply of oil and petroleum products, meaning that Russian oil can be sold to countries adhering to the West's price cap if Putin makes an exception. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts, and here are some narrative spins, beginning with the establishment critical narrative from Forbes. The West's price cap was foolish from the onset and bound to backfire. The cap is easy to circumvent, and Russia will continue to be one of the world's leaders in oil exports, given its ability to tap into eastern markets. There are many areas able and willing to buy Russian oil, and Western countries will now simply be forced to pay more for oil elsewhere. And there's a pro-establishment narrative from Fortune. Putin's energy blackmail may make him feel powerful now, but his decision to cut off oil sales to Western countries will hurt Russia in the long run. Russia is very dependent on oil exports to keep its economy afloat, and stunting the global oil market is another blunder in Putin's long line of mistakes. I feel like in this game of oil chicken, so far all the basic moves are made. Like, we're not only going to pay a certain amount, but we're not going to give it to you if you only play that amount. And now it gets interesting. Where do you go from here? Mm, yes. 
who is going to dunk their oil chicken person into the pool first? Is I that- mean, it's been said many times, but yes, <laughs> it's a cliche for a reason. Taiwan extends their mandatory military service. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, CNN, Al Jazeera, The Guardian, Washington Post, and NPR Online News. Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen announced Tuesday that the country's current four-month mandatory military service for male citizens will be extended to a full year in 2024, citing national security concerns to justify what she described as a difficult decision. A series of reforms to the military structure were also disclosed Tuesday, including dividing it into four main categories. The main combat force, made up of professional soldiers, will be responsible for territorial security, while conscripts will join the garrison force to protect key infrastructure inside Taiwan. Tsai stated that the current military system is inefficient and insufficient to counter Beijing's apparent military threat. While more than three-quarters of the Taiwanese people reportedly believe that four months of mandatory military service is too short. This announcement comes a day after Taiwan's defense minister reported that 71 Chinese aircraft had entered the island's self-declared air defense identification zone, some of which extends over mainland China, within 24 hours on Monday, the largest reported incursion to date. Tensions have mounted in the Taiwan Strait to levels not seen in decades, following the visit of U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in August, which prompted the People's Liberation Army to fire missiles and conduct military exercises in response. Taiwan, whose 188,000-person military is mostly comprised of volunteers, split from mainland China in 1949 during a civil war. However, Beijing has long claimed the self-ruled island as part of its territory. Those were the facts. We'll start this round of narrative spins with a pro-China narrative coming from the Global Times. Extending mandatory military service won't reduce the gap between forces in the Taiwan Straits, and it's unlikely to improve the island's combat capacity. Taipei, however, has decided to follow this path under the irresistible pressure of the U.S., a disgraceful move that will turn the Taiwanese people into frontline pawns to advance U.S. strategic interests against China. And we have an anti-China narrative from Focus Taiwan. Conscription reform, along with other structural reforms to Taiwan's military, is crucial to enhance deterrence in the Taiwan Straits as Beijing seeks to undermine the international order as well as regional peace and stability. This move increases Taiwan's national security by demonstrating its commitment to self-defense and also wins it international support. And from time to time, we have a statistics-based nerd narrative coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 25% chance that Taiwan will declare independence by 2035. If you take a stance for or against China, you're a pariah one way or the other, it feels like. Mm. Um, I don't want to bring up Richard Gere again, but I was doing oh, a little no, Richard Scott. Gere research. <laughs> so <laughs> we were talking Mr. about- Gere alone. We, well, apparently Richard Gere at the Oscars in like 1993 said that he favors a free Tibet. And oh, yes. I do remember this. Supposedly- that has left him without the ability that has crippled his ability to be in big movies because the Chinese box office and all these different oh. things like he's become 
a pariah for those reasons. And it does link up directly to his career, kind of switching from being a huge mainstream star to not. Although there are other stories about Richard Gere that may also have affected his career in some it, it may have, negative way. There may have been some other <laughs> <laughs> reasons. Maybe. I mean, allegedly. I don't know. Pointed. Yeah. But well, I that, don't know. I mean, I don't. It's alleged. I, honestly, I don't think those those things are true. No. I think those are just stories. But yes. story, you know, the there's you know stories hurt. You know, it's true. Well, who was after him then? Oh, every nurse and doctor in Los Angeles said <laughs> they were working there that night. I had this clock on my wall at one point that was just numbers on the wall. There actually was no clock. Oh, cool! But it was like a negative space clock. And it and, still moved. And it still right? it, the, the the hands moved, and there were numbers on the wall, but there was no clock. So, but because it filled in all the negative space, you could see that there was a clock there, kind of, you know, even though there right. was no clock. I think we've done that with this Richard Gear story. We've filled in all the other room, so now you can see without us saying it what oh, has happened. Th- this is my favorite type of theater. A little <laughs> surreal. That's right. That's right. Hopefully. <laughs> let's let's hope let's hope it's surreal. What we're doing is high art. Just to, you know, this banter is very high art. On day 307 of the Ukraine conflict, Ukraine aims for a UN-backed peace summit by the end of February. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, US News and World Report, the website of President Zelensky, and Ukraine Forum. In an interview with the Associated Press, Ukraine's foreign minister Dmitry Kuleba said his country wants a UN-backed peace summit, mediated by Secretary General Antonio Guterres, by the end of February, on or near the one-year anniversary of the war. However, Kuleba said he doesn't envision Russia taking part, given that one of Ukraine's requirements is that Russia faces a war crimes tribunal before Kyiv directly engages with Moscow. Kuleba said other countries should feel free to engage directly with Russia. Meanwhile, Kuleba also dismissed Russian President Vladimir Putin's comments that Moscow is ready to engage in peace talks. They regularly say that they are ready for negotiations, which is not true, because everything they do on the battlefield proves the opposite, Kuleba said. In separate comments with Russian news agency TASS, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov also demonstrated the gulf of opinion between the two countries. Lavrov said, Our proposals for the demilitarization and denazification of the territories controlled by the regime, the elimination of threats to Russia's security emanating from there, including our new lands, are well known to the enemy. The point is simple. Fulfill them for your own good. Otherwise, the issue will be decided by the Russian army. Meanwhile, there's been no let-up in fighting, namely in the Donbas region of Donetsk. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said the situation there is difficult, acute. The occupiers are using all the resources available to them, and these are significant resources to squeeze out at least some advance. Ukrainian officials said two civilians were injured in Russian attacks on Donetsk in the past day. Pro-Russia officials also said two civilians were injured in Ukrainian attacks. Elsewhere, Ukrainian officials said one civilian was killed in Russian attacks on Kharkiv, while one person was injured in Kherson. The region of Sumy was also shelled without reports of civilian casualties. Thanks for that update, Melissa. We have Narrative A from The Bulwark. 
As the White House and others have noted, any peace settlement should come on Ukraine's terms. This includes restoration of territorial integrity, compensation, and war crimes prosecutions. It should also come with meaningful security guarantees to prevent future Russian aggression. And narrative B is from Politico. A sober analysis shows Ukraine is unlikely to drive Russian troops from all its territory. The longer the war goes on, the worse it gets for Ukraine, while increasing the chances of a hot war between Russia, the U.S., and NATO. The Biden administration has a duty to try and find a negotiated end to the war. And we have another nerd narrative on this story. It says that there is a 1% chance that Putin and Zelensky will meet to discuss the peaceful resolution of the Russian-Ukraine conflict before the year 2023, and that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. It doesn't sound like Russia is ready to talk. Uh, it doesn't seem that way. I think they're they're ready to talk about being ready to talk, though, right? Perhaps. Perhaps. Ethnic Serbs erect roadblocks and the Serbian army is on high alert in Kosovo. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Washington Post, ABC News, Al Jazeera, PBS NewsHour, DW, and Bloomberg. Ethnic Serbs on Tuesday put up new barriers in Mitrovica, blocking streets in one of the main towns in northern Kosovo for the first time since the recent crisis started, using heavily loaded trucks in defiance of international demands to remove roadblocks placed earlier. Alexander Vucic accused the West of plotting with ethnic Albanian authorities to trigger unrest and kill the Serbs, while stating that Belgrade is currently negotiating with EU and U.S. mediators on preserving peace and finding a compromise solution. This comes a day after Vucic ordered the country's army and police to be put on high alert, claiming that Pristina was preparing an attack against ethnic Serbs who have been protesting against the arrest of a former Kosovo Serb policeman for almost three weeks. Tensions culminated in a reported shooting incident with no reported injuries on Sunday in a town where ethnic Serbs have been manning barricades for the past two weeks. Amid conflicting reports, NATO peacekeepers are still collecting all the facts. Northern Kosovo has been on heightened alert since November when hundreds of ethnic Serb workers in the Kosovo police and judiciary walked off the job in a boycott against the Kosovar Prime Minister Albin Kurdi's ban on plates issued by the Serbian authorities, with the intention to replace them for Kosovo plates. Kosovo is predominantly populated by ethnic Albanians, but has a Serb majority in its northern regions, which Serbia pulled its troops from in 1999 after NATO intervened. Kosovo declared independence in 2008, but Serbia still considers Kosovo to be part of its own territory. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We've got several narratives. The establishment critical narrative comes from naked capitalism. This conflict has been turned into another proxy war waged by the West over energy. With memories of NATO's bombing of Belgrade in the 1990s still fresh and the U.S. and EU's current backing of Ukraine, it's no wonder Serbia has been looking eastward for both financial and political support. Europe, however, knows it has an economic stranglehold on Serbia, which is why it's pressing the Balkan state so hard to ditch Russia and China and succumb to the progressive green energy plans of Brussels and Berlin. And the pro-establishment narrative comes from DW. 
Russia's war in Ukraine has prompted valid concerns that Moscow's ally Serbia could play the same card against Kosovo, especially given that neither country recognizes Kosovo as a sovereign state and both share aggressive political rhetoric. The main difference between the fate of Kyiv and Pristina lies in the presence of NATO forces in Kosovo, which has so far deterred Belgrade from waging armed conflict and restrained it from disinformation tactics and propaganda. And there's a nerd narrative on this story stating there's a 50% chance that Serbia will recognize Kosovo by March 2040. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. When they were talking about Serbian plates and and Kosovo plates, of course, they're talking about car license plates. But it made me think of those commemorative plates that were big back in the day. Like it would be like a dinner plate with like a picture on it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I absolutely do. And there was a little infomercial where they'd have all the information and they would picture in picture the plate (laughs) up in your screen. It'd be rotating slowly on some sort of lazy Susan. Um, Right. Nice gold, uh, like gold uh, lining on the outside. And that was what like 90% of social security payments went to at one point, right? Commemorative (laughs) plates were big. Oh, yeah. That and coins. I I would get some pleasure out of putting a china set together of just commemorative novelty plates and eating like that's what we eat off of. That's like, oh, yeah. You got to have a big dinner party. You have the Susan B. Anthony. You have this. You have that. That would be fun. And then who gets what, right? Yeah. You could assign somebody a historic figure as they walk into the door. Also, we better start making more friends. There were a lot of plates. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) The only only, I want to make friends. Why? I need to be able to throw a big enough commemorative plate dinner party. That's what I'll tell my therapist. And we could also do uh, tapas so everyone gets more than one plate. That would be one way to extend it. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) Just one. Yeah. One course on each plate. That's right. Yeah, all the dishes there will be to to, to wash. Representative-elect Santos admits to fabricating his resume details. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Post, CNN, CNBC, and The Hill. In an interview with the New York Post on Monday, Representative-elect George Santos, Republican of New York, admitted to fabricating details about his educational and professional experience while on the campaign trail. The controversy stems from a recent New York Times article claiming Santos lied about attending Baruch College, which the university has no record of, as well as claiming that he worked at Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. The banks also have no record of his employment. While acknowledging he lied on his resume, Santos said he's not a criminal and he intends to serve his upcoming term in the House. In regard to his professional experience at Citigroup and Goldman Sachs, Santos said he never worked directly for either financial firm, but he conducted business with them while he was VP of the investment company Linkbridge. Santos also confessed that he never graduated from any university and said he's embarrassed he lied. As for allegations that he lied about his Jewish heritage, Santos said that despite having some Jewish background on his mother's side, he never claimed to be Jewish and is clearly Catholic. Some House Democrats have called on Santos to resign from his upcoming seat in Congress, saying if he doesn't, then the House GOP leaders should call for a vote to expel him. Okay, thanks, Melissa. We have a Republican narrative from Newsbusters. Although lying on the campaign trail is inarguably an inexcusable move, 
The opposition and its cronies in the media are using this as a political tool to launch an assault on the GOP while conveniently turning a blind eye when one of their own does the same. President Biden himself is no stranger to deceit, having plagiarized speeches, lied about attending an HBCU, and made false claims about his grades in law school. And Scott, where there's a Republican, there's a Democratic narrative. This comes from the Rolling Stone. Santos lied and deceived the people he promised to represent. Now, even after admitting to his lies, he's trying to pin the blame on media outlets that simply reported the congressman-elect's fabrications. Santos won't accept responsibility for his actions, and he's unfit to serve the people of New York. Peru arrests generals amid the Castillo probe. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, DW, Al Jazeera, Euronews, and Voice of America. On Monday, the anti-corruption unit of Peru's attorney general's office detained six generals who were being investigated on claims that they took part in a pay-for-promotion scheme in 2021, allegedly with the consent of ousted former president Pedro Castillo. This comes a month after former Army General Jose Vizcarra and former Air Force Commander Jorge Chaparro claimed that Castillo's government had previously pressured them to promote officers who didn't qualify. Three of those detained in the reportedly mega-operation are active police generals who have been accused of having approved promotions in exchange for money. Police also confiscated documents and devices during a raid of the home of Walter Ayala, Castillo's former defense minister, who has denied any corruption allegations as part of 25 nationwide raids. Castillo, arrested earlier this month after being voted out of office for attempting to dissolve Congress and serving a 48-month pretrial detention, faces six separate counts of corruption, including for influence peddling, all of which he has denied. Since he was ousted and detained on December 7th, protesters have been raging across Peru, forcing main infrastructures to be shut down and reportedly claiming the lives of more than 20 people as demonstrators reject the new government formed by Dina Boluarte. Thank you, Scott. Our narrative spins begin with a pro-establishment narrative from the Washington Post. The fact that Peru has already had six presidents since 2016 speaks volumes about the country's political situation and underscores what a difficult legacy Boluarte is taking on. It's a positive sign that the coup attempt by the ultra-leftist and corrupt Castillo failed thanks to the resilience of Peruvians. If Boluarte now succeeds in forming a strong government and implementing structural reforms, there's good reason for optimism for Peruvian democracy. And foreign policy brings us the establishment critical narrative. The ongoing protests highlight that the justified ouster of the unpopular Castillo is by no means the end of the ongoing political crisis in Peru. Poor Peruvians have legitimate doubts that the dysfunctional democratic system will change anything about their desperate situation. That's why snap decisions would likely benefit populist candidates. It's uncertain whether Boluarte will manage to keep Peru from becoming ungovernable. And there's a nerd narrative on this story from Metaculus says there's a 50% chance that Peru's GDP per capita will be $20,400 in 2030. A man is sentenced for plotting to kidnap the Michigan governor. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Times, ABC, The Daily Wire, Wall Street Journal, and CNN. 
Adam Fox, described by federal prosecutors in Grand Rapids, Michigan, as a militia member and leader of a plot to kidnap Michigan's Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, was sentenced to 16 years in prison on Tuesday, the longest sentence yet for anyone involved in the high-profile domestic terrorism case. After a hung jury in his first trial, Fox, 39, was convicted in August alongside Barry Croft, Jr. on charges of kidnapping conspiracy and conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction, which carries a maximum sentence of life imprisonment. Croft will be sentenced on Wednesday. Fox's attorney, Christopher Gibbons, argued he was an unemployed vacuum repairman who was venting his frustrations on social media, not the false narrative of a terrifying paramilitary leader the prosecution accused him of being. Prosecutors also made the case that the 2020 plot included Fox conducting reconnaissance of Whitmer's summer home, blowing up a bridge near that home, and kidnapping her when he had the opportunity. They claimed that ultimately, Fox wanted to start a second civil war. The defense, however, also argued entrapment, saying the FBI coerced the defendants into pursuing the plot through various undercover agents. They asked for a sentence of four to six years, aligned with the sentences of others who have pleaded guilty ahead of trial. The sentence comes after three other co-defendants were convicted in October on charges of providing support for terrorist acts, for which they could receive between seven and 20 years. Five other men were charged in state court in another county and are awaiting trial. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have an establishment critical narrative from the Chicago Sun-Times. Both the conviction and sentence of Adam Fox and his so-called co-conspirators have been blown way out of proportion, given that two other suspects in the case have already been acquitted, coupled with the fact that undercover FBI agents encouraged, coordinated, assisted, and funded various parts of the scheme it's clear that if it weren't for the feds, this kidnapping plot would have never have occurred. The pro-establishment narrative is written by the Detroit Free Press. After a jury of Adam Fox's peers heard arguments and evidence from both sides, it rightfully decided to convict him of plotting a violent kidnapping attempt against the governor of Michigan. While on the surface, entrapment may seem to be a sound argument, the reality is that the FBI didn't plant the seed and the prosecution proved that the defendant was predisposed to commit the crime. Melissa, did you know that Alex P. Keaton himself, Michael J. Fox, his real middle initial is A? I did not know that. Yeah, he's really Michael A. Fox. I wonder if he's related to Vivica. China ends its COVID quarantine for foreign travelers. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Guardian. CNBC, BBC News, and China Briefing. On Monday, Chinese authorities announced that, beginning January 8th of 2023, travelers will no longer need to quarantine upon arrival on the mainland, though a negative nucleic acid test from the last 48 hours will still be required. China's National Health Commission added that COVID management will be formally downgraded to a Class B infectious disease from the current top-level Category A. In addition, the commission said the PRC would take steps to improve visa arrangements for foreigners, excluding tourists, entering the country to resume work, business, study, and family gatherings. 
The country's zero-COVID policy presently mandates inbound travelers to quarantine for five days at a government-supervised facility and three days of isolation at home. The move follows rare public protests, the largest since the Tiananmen Square demonstrations of 1989 against the PRC's strict lockdowns earlier this month. It also comes as the country grapples with the virus's unprecedented spread in the wake of the government's sudden dismantling of its strict policies. Though officials have stopped releasing daily case counts and deaths, a Bloomberg report claims as many as 248 million people contracted the virus in the first 20 days of December 2022. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We'll start with a pro-China narrative from the Global Times. The world has much to learn from China's COVID response, which allowed the mainland to halt its spread while the infection caused over 15 million deaths worldwide. The PRC is doing the best it can as it tries to balance economic realities, public health, and societal pressures. Beijing's current strategic easing will safeguard both health and the economy. And the anti-China narrative comes from the Daily Mail. Beijing's zero-COVID U-turn could prove lethal. The PRC's hermit strategy has left the population with little exposure or natural immunity, and the virus will undoubtedly run rampant as almost all restrictions are now lifted. Given China's low vaccination rate for the elderly, the government has inadvertently initiated a pandemic tsunami by downgrading the threat and allowing the virus to rip through the population. And there's a nerd narrative saying there's a 4% chance that cumulative reported deaths from COVID in China will exceed 50,000 before 2023. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. This isn't a criticism of China in particular, but just any huge government or bureaucracy or organization. The fact that you have to, and I'm sure you do, like announce months in advance that you're going to change your important policies almost certainly means that conditions will have changed by the time that comes about, right? It's just so slow moving. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a big machine. I, I know you wouldn't want to offend China because I know you don't want to work with Richard Gere. Certainly. Oh. No, no, I refuse to work with Richard Gere. <laughs> Absolutely not. In domestic news, Southwest Airlines is probed for flight cancellations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Fox News, The Daily Mail, NBC, and The New York Post. The U.S. Department of Transportation has said that it's concerned about Southwest Airlines' recent rash of cancellations and delays in response to last weekend's major storm and will investigate whether the carrier could have responded better. Southwest didn't directly respond to the possibility of being investigated, but previously offered heartfelt apologies in a public statement. The airline said it's rebooking customers as quickly as it can and is offering refunds and credits. In the aftermath of the storm caused by an Arctic blast dubbed Elliot that continues to batter the U.S. with record-breaking low temperatures, Southwest canceled more than 70% of its flights on Monday alone. Other airlines have been impacted by the storm, but of the more than 4,500 flights canceled on Tuesday, 56% belong to Southwest. More than 3,000 flights had been canceled for Wednesday, including 70% on the Dallas-based carrier. The airport's worst hit by cancellations have been Denver, Las Vegas, Chicago Midway, Baltimore, Washington, and Dallas Love Field. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have an establishment critical narrative from NPR. 
Southwest's cancellation total is 10 times more than the airline with the second most cancellations. So obviously, it's doing something drastically wrong. The skies have cleared since the storm, yet Southwest continues to cancel flights at a high rate. This is a total meltdown. And if Southwest can't get its act together, maybe regulators can get the carrier in line. And the pro-establishment narrative comes from CNN. Southwest has done plenty wrong in terms of overzealous scheduling and under-investing in operations. But these cancellations are equally attributable to bad luck. Two of its biggest hubs, Chicago Midway and Denver International Airport, were hardest hit by the storm. And staffing has been challenged by the so-called triple-demic, COVID, flu, and RSV. Combine that with a holiday rush, and Southwest has faced an unprecedented challenge to its service. What do you think? Negligence, stupidity, perfect storm, so to speak? What do you, where do you come in on this? Yeah, I agree with all of those. And our final story, the United States FDA explores regulating CBD in foods and supplements. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the Wall Street Journal, the Food and Drug Administration website, CBS, the Environmental Work Group, and Cannabis Business Times. In a significant shift, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, is examining whether legal cannabidiol, or CBD, is safe to add to foods and dietary supplements. According to agency officials, the FDA is looking to answer questions about the science, safety, and quality of products containing cannabis and dozens of cannabinoid chemicals, particularly CBD. In the coming months, the FDA is expected to decide how to regulate legal cannabis and whether CBD, a non-addictive active ingredient in cannabis, can be safely eaten every day for an extended period of time. The FDA has only approved one prescription CBD drug, named Epidiolex, for treating seizures associated with two rare and severe forms of epilepsy in patients two years of age and older. CBD has been widely used in food and beverages since Congress legalized hemp production and delisted it as a controlled substance in 2018. However, it is currently illegal to market CBD by adding it to a food or labeling it as a dietary supplement. Last month, the FDA sent warning letters to five companies for illegally selling unapproved CBD products, especially in forms that appeal to children, such as gummies, that the agency claims may result in unintentional consumption or overconsumption of CBD. Thanks, Scott, for the facts on that final story. Narrative A is written by Healthline. Although several U.S. states have passed laws to legalize CBD, products containing the non-psychoactive cannabis compound are technically illegal at the federal level. Federal regulations should complement rather than contradict state rules. Rather than outright denying safe CBD-infused products from coming to market, the FDA must take action and establish a clear and uniform set of standards for companies to adhere to. And Narrative B comes from Natural Products Insider. The FDA's current hardline position against foods and beverages containing CBD is understandable, given that available scientific data shows that high doses of CBD can damage the liver, reduce sperm quality, and adversely interact with other medications. Until the agency understands the implications of long-term consumption of CBD in foods, it must refrain from concluding that CBD-infused food and dietary supplements can be considered safe. 
And there's a nerd narrative on this story from the Metaculous Prediction community saying there's a 60% chance that cannabis will be removed from Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substance Act before 2024. Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, December 28th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.